Uh, hey everybody, I'm Paige. I'm Chris. We're just hopping straight in today. No pre-series banter due to Tiffany. Yeah, and uh, welcome to this episode of Animates. Uh, so today we begin. We begin with Disney. That mm. oh so complicated of channels. Yeah. And we're going to start our uh, sort of big three coverage of Disney with the Proud Family. A really, um, if nothing else, a very entertaining program. Uh, I think we wanted to give like a little bit of a disclaimer before this one. For one, um, Chris and I are both white people. Um, so we might be, there might be topics in this episode that are not something that we know the most about or have personal experience with, but we think it would be doing a disservice to just not talk about them. So we're going to do the best we can um, to, you know, give it a fair treatment to just base our discussion off of what we know from our own research and talking, uh, you know, to friends or to people in the black community, but we might, we might get stuff wrong. Um, you know, and feel free to call us out if we've done that, but just know, like, we would rather give something sort of a mediocre treatment than just ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, and part and parcel with that is that we're going to be really critical of the political content of the Proud family, um, but we feel that we should say that it is it was the first Disney Channel original animated series. Um, it's one of very few animated series that has ever existed with a predominantly black cast, both in the characters and the voice actors. And that representation aspect of it, we think, is awesome. And that's super cool. Um, however... <laughs> There's a lot of other stuff once you get a little deeper into the actual content of the show that is questionable, I'd say. Uh, yeah, and that will become fairly clear when we talk about certain episodes because, oh boy, are there just certain moments where... Um, I, I don't know. I was kind of shocked, honestly, by it. I don't remember... A lot of the things that I, I, where I was like, whoa, what, what, uh, patterns of like, behavior or things that people say or do or plots of an episode mm -hmm. that just made me go, what the fuck? Like, I had a vague memory that the sexual politics of the Proud family was not good. I did not remember that basically horrible, shitty sexual politics was, like, a central theme of the show. I And I, I, I did not either. Uh, I, I remember watching it and being just like, oh, okay. But uh, this time through, whether it's because, like, mm -hmm. after college and stuff, it just... Uh, so many things just popped out at me, um, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about that for sure, uh, just to give it the basic rundown as we usually do with a show, right? Uh, it's a Disney show, and we <laughs> I can't emphasize that enough because that fact will uh -huh. come back again and again in discussing a lot of the issues that the show has. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. But it was created by Bruce W. Smith, and although it was a Disney show, it was produced by Jambalaya Studios, and many episodes were produced using Adobe Flash, so in essence, a lot of the show is just a fancy Flash animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now the... So the cast and actually the music of the show is incredibly, absurdly star-studded. Especially like, for a production value that it's got. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So even just to begin, the smallest one, BB and CC, the babies, they're played by Tara Strong, like voice acting great, voiced half the babies on Rugrats. She showed up in some capacity in pretty much every show that we've covered, um, holding it down, <laughs> like Tara right. Strong. The um, opening theme is by Solange Knowles, 
featuring Destiny's Child, which if that doesn't probably yeah, <laughs> if that doesn't just plant it right in the early two thousands, I don't know what else does. It's a great theme song, though. It's very good. <laughs> like I'm sure you all remember the theme song if you watch The Proud Family at all. Actually, like Chris, do you have the theme song? Like, are you gonna play it while we talk I, about that? I already, I already gave people a taste. Oh damn! Wow, like so smooth. I didn't even know what was going on. I okay, but like. I, I, I go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I just wanted to talk about the cast a little bit more because the cast, it's just like, it's unbelievable. Um, so the main cast, you have um, Kyla Pratt voices Penny Proud. She later becomes a big uh, Disney Channel star. Orlando Brown voices Sticky, big Disney Channel star. Tommy Davidson, he's Oscar. He was on In Living Color. Um, Paula J. Parker, she was, uh, I want to say, um, what show was she on? She was on another like well well known show. She was in oh she was in a lot of movies. She was in Friday. She was in Hustle and Flow. She was in Idlewild. Uh, Sugar Mama is Joe Marie Payton, who was in uh, Family Matters. Um, you know, uh, Felix is played by Carlos Mencia, who was incredibly famous at this time period. Um, even Zoe like. Weirdly, the token white character, its that's the only time you'll ever be able to say a token white character. She's voiced by Soleil Moon Fry, who is Punky Brewster, who was super famous in TV in the 80s and 90s. So just the regular cast, tons of like like really well-known, like famous people. Um, well, then, people who, then you get go, like supporting cast members and guest mm-hmm. stars, and that is additionally star-studded. Like, you get Cedric the Entertainer, Incredibly. like, Arsenio Hall, both of those people voice Bobby Proud. Bobby. Right, Oscar's old star, brother, who sings, mm-hmm. like, uh, like a Rick James style. I yeah, think. it's great. Like, let me just read a few names off of the notable guest stars list, which is longer than, like, incredibly long. Al Roker. Alicia Keys, Samuel L. Jackson, Ashanti, Monique, Solange Knowles, Steve Harvey, Omarion, Ving Rhames, Shia LaBeouf. He wasn't famous then. He was another Disney kid at that time. But, you know, whatever. Lou Rawls, Mariah Carey, Cicely Tyson, Ray J before the sex tape, David Allen Greer, Gabrielle Union, like it's most deaf was on there playing himself sort of like the, the number of recognizable names in the cast, both regular and guest appearances is just like beyond anything I've ever seen on a children's animation. I still like Al Roker the best because he plays a Faustian like demon but it's uh, still Al Roker. But it's still also Al Roker. I don't know. Yeah, I'm a, that's a I, great character. <laughs> I'm a su- I'm a sucker for Faustian like demons. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, obviously the cat like the show itself was a big draw for many people um, from music, especially like Disney stars and then musical stars. Uh-huh. as well, comedians. I mean, it really runs the gambit across entertainment. And I, I have to wonder if that is partially, like, you get so many, so much crosstalk from primarily famous African-Americans that I, I wonder, like, if that's something that people sort of looked out for, like opportunities to join, like, endeavors like this. I, I don't know how entertainment networking goes or how that interacts with um, with ethnicity yeah. or race. But I have to assume that because the business, like minorities have to fight for mm-hmm. airtime and opportunity, that there's a lot of strong networking. Um, I mean, you see that, like, I remember that came up with um, just recently... Very, 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 very sad moment for everyone and the musical community. Very important death. <sighs> Aretha. Yeah, Aretha Franklin. But she was well known 
to like work in a variety of endeavors with other African Americans, primarily civil rights. But essentially, those communities are smaller, so you see a lot of crosstalk between individuals. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. I'm sure that like you know this the cultural space that the Proud family occupied. Because like I may be completely wrong right now, and just like an ignorant white girl, but. Prior to the Proud Family, the only cartoon I can think of with, like, a predominantly black cast, both as characters and voice actors, is Fat Albert. You know? Yeah, I think so. And the the time between those two is, like, decades. Right, and this is just an animation. Obviously, there were... um, Primarily, it's some of the voice actors on the show were from really notable like sitcoms with predominantly black casts. Right, they drew from that talent. So I guess the biggie is that this was designed for kids, not just families. Mm -hmm. Um, like a sitcom would be, but I mean it reads like a sitcom, which segues us into the structure of the show. Unlike uh, Nickelodeon or. Wait, am I totally crazy? It, it's no, it doesn't. It's Every other min- show we've done has fifteen minute segment or eleven minute segments. Right, and this is twenty two minutes. Yeah, so it's I, a I, full. You would think of it as a full half hour length show in the same way a live action show would be. Right, so it reads like a sitcom. Its plots often resolve around very sitcommy premises. Best friends are fighting. Uh, Daughter's dating a guy, and the dad is being a nosy, nosy bastard. Um, oh, like a lot of the plots are recycled from. Oh yeah, standard There's sitcom playbook. Innovative plot-wise, in the I mean, Proud Family, uh, there are themes that tack on to episode plots we know about that do make them stand out, and that they are mm-hmm. unique. But. Um, I oh, think being a Faustian demon, that is pretty unique. Yeah, that is pretty dang unique. And they do a bunch of cartoon things where like magic gets involved or you have really weird supernatural things happening occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the show, I don't think was, and we shouldn't necessarily expect it to, right? Um, but it wasn't breaking any new ground with television so- show structure. But... No, but definitely ne- not. But neither did a lot of, like, neither did a lot of things. Not, um... Yeah, and, like, to be fair, like, even Hey Arnold, frequently those plots were pretty standard. Right, know? standard drama. Not every show can be Courage the Cowardly Dog. Right, exactly. Um, but I, I think that that helps us really understand, like, it's a... Fairly standard nuclear family style. The only non-nuclear family aspect is the fact that Oscar's mother tends to hang out and... Okay, so I should back up, right? Because we need to talk about our main characters. So Penny Penny Proud is the main character. And, and the fact that we're following a teenage... Like a teenage girl, like a 14-year-old... Yeah, she's 14. Like, a 14-year-old is also important because I feel like the show didn't occupy the explicit niche of teenage girl show, which is... I I didn't get that feeling from it. Because, I don't know, you've got, like, Clarissa Explains It All and other, other shows that felt explicitly teenage girl. And this didn't actually feel explicitly teenage girl no it didn't it felt like really similar to the same kind of way that like hey arnold felt um and i also think it's important because this is the only only the second show that we've covered where the main character was a girl you know most of the shows that we've covered the main character has been even the more ensemble shows the main character has been male yeah, so in, in, in many ways, this is a very good addition to just a sort of general media representation buffet. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's it, it, it was kind of nice that it didn't feel explicitly teenage girl. I feel like that mm-hmm. niche 
while there are some really good shows, I mean, I watched Clarissa, Clarissa Explains It All when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's nice to just not feel it shoehorned into that. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, Penny, like in terms of character, she's just sort of like your standard American teenager. That's like kind of the point. Yeah. With, Penny. with standard coming of age plots. Yeah. Um, um, and, and so it centers mostly around like it's Penny and her family mostly. And also like Penny's friends and some other characters in the town. So I think we should introduce the, the literal, the proud family. All right, so we've got Penny, then we've got her mom, Trudy, who, out of the adult characters, is probably the least problematic. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I don't know, Sugar Mama is pretty... I don't know. She's, she's mostly there... She's physically violent with her son. She's physically violent with her son, but she's mostly there for slapstick comedic effect. Yeah, yeah, she's mostly comedic relief and to make, like cultural references yeah black history and culture she's the she's the resident civil rights name dropper yeah for sure which is something like i appreciate a lot more about the show now as an adult who knows more about that history you know exactly exactly i mean you hear a lot of famous names from her okay so i guess since we're talking about sugar mama right now sugar mama otherwise uh aka sugar proud is her name uh she is the mother of Oscar Proud, the patriarch of the family. Right, so we've got Oscar, who's a snack entrepreneur. We could probably talk an entire show about Oscar Proud. Snacks. Um, <laughs> Oscar Proud. But oh, man. We, we round out with BB and Cece, so the younger siblings of penny they 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 exist primarily for slapstick humor that's like their reason they aren't if i I think that's how you say that i'm so bad with french um (laughs) but that's their reason for being Mm -hmm. uh yeah, they mostly just, uh, there's the Sugar Mama's beloved poodle, Puff. Um, they torture Puff, and then sometimes they'll, you know, occasionally they'll uh, exhibit a talent that Oscar decides is going to make the family rich. Like, one time Cece seems to be able to play golf. One time they're in a commercial, you know. Right, and and uh, Cece clearly takes after... Trudy and BB clearly takes after Oscar. Like they, yeah, in terms they, of looks, yeah. they split the they split the the split the difference on that one. Uh-huh. But overall, they're the standard sort of nuclear family. They do you do get some extended family interactions. Um, boy. Trudy and Oscar's extended families are a trip because Trudy's I, extended family I are basically specifically on that episode. <laughs> like that episode is all sorts of problem. Um, mm. Could you run the gambit from one extreme to the other, which is Oscar's family are, you could argue that they not only represent like sort of, Okay, it's it's so a mind. It oh my god! It's a minefield. It's a minefield for me to talk about because yeah. if it were a show about white people, Oscar's family would be like hillbillies or rednecks, and um, Trudy's family would be like people from like a Grey Poupon commercial. Well, and the um, fact Trudy's family is basically just that, but with a black family. That yeah. that one fits. Like that one sort of that mold. Have have you ever noticed that for some reason ar- aristocratic factors just seem to you know be pressed uniformly, and then it's like lower class things that tend to vary. I don't know. Yeah, I guess because it's just like having money like flattens difference, right? And I think that that show is particularly, from what little I know, like. Oscar's cousins play into like certain stereotypes about like that in shows with predominantly black casts, like for black audiences tend to be played out typically through cousins. And yeah. Like a certain, it's a certain stereotype of like 
they're they're like country cousins, but like they have behaviors that, as like a white audience, we would consider to be like ghetto or ratchet. Well, no, it right? would be it would be. I think I think um, like urban urban ghetto stereotypes uh, and uh, some negative like some stereotypes like negative black stereotypes, for example, like they're all obese. Like yeah, um, mass like they're all. Uh, loudmouthed, rude. Um, the wife has long pink fingernails and her hair is cut in a very, like, the only way that I know how to put it is, like, inner city, like, salon black woman haircut. Yeah, and from... This episode is one of those times where I'm like, I think we should talk about it rather than just pretend that it doesn't exist. But it's clearly addressing, like, conflicts and themes that are very internal to the black community that we are looking in on as outsiders. Because I I understand from my limited amount of knowledge that there are, are certain class conflicts and the way that and certain ways that class conflicts play out within the black community that are being examined by that episode because the whole conflict is that like Oscar's cousins are like poor and embody negative stereotypes about black people and Trudy's family are white and behave, uh, sorry, they're not white. Wow. That got to where I was going. That's, uh, well, I mean, uh, for lack of a better term, they've essentially assimilated into white aristocratic culture, wealthier and their behaviors and interests are what would be more commonly associated with white people of a similar socioeconomic status. It's assimilated. Right. Um, and the 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 huge like boiling point of the whole episode is when you know basically they um, you know Trudy's family does essentially does the Chris Rock black people versus N words bit at Oscar's family, and then Oscar's family tells them to go back to Bougieville, and they all get into a physical fight, right? Um, and so like, it's a really interesting episode in that, like it addresses those conflicts and the resolution seems to be like, at the end of the day, we are all one family and one community and we have our differences, but we can like get along with each other and love one another. Yeah. I mean, standard sitcom conflict resolution. Yeah. And like, I really don't have more to say about it than that because it is addressing a type of conflict that I have just no frame of reference for. I just, from what I understand, it exists. Um, and I would rather, and there's a whole episode about it. So I would rather address it than not. I, I sort of see it. Um, so I sort of see it as, so I can't understand it from a racial perspective. I sort of see it from a gay perspective. So using like my own minority status as a lens mm-hmm. to understand that particular kind of conflict, because you see a homologous, which for all of you people out there, homologous means like one thing serves the same function as another. Um mm-hmm. There's a homologous conflict amongst gay men, amongst those who are like, stop acting so faggy. Yeah. Um, and, and to reduce that a little bit, it's right. It's like, there are people who are like, stop making gay people stand out, assimilate, um, care about monogamous relationships and get married and have kids and do all of the standard things that straight heterosexual people, white heterosexual people do, um, so we can fit in and get equality. And then there's people on the other side who are like, bitch, I want to drag. And like being queer or being gay is about like breaking away from sexual norms and we should be okay to explore new things and break away from these cultural facets, even though 
they produce conflict. And so I yeah. it, like it's just the standard assimilate versus not conflict. Yeah, and then there's also like a class element. Which you, like there's undeniable you get that, class element. You get that with gay people too. There's like mm-hmm. rich gays versus poor or underprivileged gays. And oh, yeah. a lot of cultural expectations amongst gay people are from richer gays. The like living in a gay neighborhood, uh mm-hmm. that's they're I mean, expensive. They are expensive. <laughs> that's an inner city. Going clubbing, like that all of a lot of that expects you to kind of have money, you know, to be clean yeah. and well groomed and do all these things. Um, so I, I that's how I sort of understand the conflict, just sort of in a different environment. And obviously, yeah. it, they're always a little bit different. But uh, class conflict is not just <laughs> tied to that episode. Oh boy. Oh no. Okay. So. Do you want to, I kind of almost want to just like cover all the touchy stuff that's difficult for us to like address as white people, just like right now, <laughs> just deal with it all right now. Like, how do you feel about that? Um, I, I, I think we already got the biggest one, but if there are some that you, I, I know the Kwanzaa thing is probably one of them. Um, yeah, the only other ones I have are the Kwanzaa episode, which like, there's also a lot of class stuff there. And Potentially colorism, because Trudy is also, she's incredibly light-skinned, and her family are light-skinned, and Oscar is not, and his family is not. And Penny is light-skinned, but her friend Dijonet, the untrustworthy, greedy, hypersexual, uh, aggressive, loud-mouthed Dijonet, is dark skinned. Holy and shit. Holy shit. You're right. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and the from gross. What I understand, all of those things that I just listed about Dijonet are stereotypes associated with dark skinned people and more specifically dark skinned women within the black community. I totally. I mean, and you throw the gross sisters in there and it goes into overdrive. Who are literally colored blue because they are supposed to be ashy. I. That's uh, explicitly stated. Oh, see, I'll. Forever to understand, like, they're ashy. They're supposed to be ashy. And apparently their names. I always thought Nubia's name was Nubia because, like, you know, like the ancient African empire, but no, their names are Nubia, Gina, and Olay, which are supposed to be plays on the lotion brands, Nivea, Neutrogena, and Olay. Wow. And they're blue because they're supposed to be ashy. See, okay, my brain interpreted the fact that they, oh, wow, so maybe, jeez. I think I was like, they're colored that way, like a purple, to represent being extremely dark skinned, because you can't, you cannot make, you cannot draw a character with like very, very, very dark black skin because it washes out an animation. Like you, you lose all their facial features with like the colors that you have to use. So I thought that in other shows, purple I've seen is represented as like very dark skin black. Yeah, no, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be ashy. So like, I just, that's another thing that I would rather like address what seems to be from an outsider as a white person, knowing very little about colorism and recognizing that it is an issue internal to communities of color. And in this case, particularly the black community, but from what I know about it, there appears to be some very real colorism happening in this show. And I would rather address it than pretend that it's not there. Right. And I think that's something that you can identify outside of our own experience, like in literature by African-American theorists or sociologists or whatever uh, field you're looking at, right? That's, that's an idea external to us. So applying it here seems academically sound. Yeah. And like, also, by the way, Dijanae, in addition to all those like negative aspects of her own character, Also, like, you almost never see her parents, but she has a bajillion 
brothers and sisters. Nine. And they're all named after different spices. Nine. Yeah. So, like, that's another negative stereotype about African-Americans that they're putting specifically on, like, the dark-skinned character and the dark-skinned family and not on the light-skinned, like, middle-class prouds. Which I wonder how much of that is just sort of implicit bias. Like, the animated, like, the original animations for them. Like, I wonder if that was yeah. just something that just slipped through unintentionally. Yeah. I mean, like, I think definitely... The fact that Dijonet is dark and also all those other things is probably implicit bias. It is interesting to me that I don't really know, because I am not a black person, I don't know what to say about the fact that Dijonet embodies all those negative stereotypes. Because you don't want to, it's the same thing like... I, with my representation with with women or with bi women, I don't want us to always be, like, perfect or never embody any negative stereotypes of women. Like, true equality and true representation is that, like, women are allowed to be shitty. Or, like, sometimes women do live up to those negative stereotypes and, like, that's fine. Well, you know, I, so I don't want to be critical of, like, Bruce Smith, Bruce W. Smith or – or any other, I don't know how many other people of color like worked on the show as writers or animators because I can't find any information about them, but that's a whole other issue. Right, and we always have to be aware of um, a lot of times, even if you were to sort of think you're approaching these problems, it's like, well, no, these problems exist. Sometimes you do end up spending a little bit more time or energy talking about the negatives of a black female stereotype versus maybe a white female stereotype. So mm -hmm. even when you're giving them, you think the same treatment, sometimes it ends up being a little bit more intense um, because implicit bias friends. But Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of that has to be contextual. Um, it, like if you, if you put this in 2001, mm -hmm. I mean, that means something. The fact yeah. that it was the only animated show with a primarily black cast on at this period, other than the Albert, right? That also means something. That means oh, it does absolutely. Like I'm the like, fact I that remember that most of the shows we're talking about now are pushing twenty years old. Like the Proud Family premiered nearly twenty years ago. So I think that saying that it's problematic to have a stereotypical character in that show is actually more valid because there were the sample size is so small. Mm -hmm. Like those those things matter more the less data you like people have to the contrary. So if it was like we have twenty characters not like Dijonet and one Dijonet, that's different mm -hmm. than oh we only have two characters and one of them is Dijonet. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to say because it's like that's the problems with Dijonet are almost like problems that are like wholly internal to the black. They're caused by white supremacy, they're caused by racism, but their manifestation is almost wholly internal to the black community and like who am I to say? whether it is good or bad <laughs> to have Dijonet, right? I just noticed this aspect of it and thought it was important to bring it up. Uh, yeah, perhaps the safest thing is just to have people make their own judgment of her. For sure. I mean, like, the thing is about this show is that all of the characters and all of the plot lines, no matter, like, if problematic or not, are very entertaining, like, Dijonet is a very entertaining character, as is Penny, as is Oscar, as is, you know, Poppy and Sugar Mama, all of whom can be very problematic, like, politically, you know? Yeah, and, I mean, speaking of, did you, okay, so before we get off onto other stuff, did you want to touch on something else that is, you know, sensitive, discussing, considering our backgrounds, yeah, I think the last thing I have about that is, um, so far as I am aware that it's sensitive discussing using our backgrounds, you know, as a white person, um, is the Kwanzaa episode, because that is a truly bizarre episode. Truly bizarre. 
Like uh, the, Samuel Jackson's in it, though. That's cool. The plot of that episode makes very like it, it is. It, it's just a really weird way to write a holiday episode. Yeah. Okay. Let me try and run down the plot real quick. So it's Christmas season. They're getting Christmas presents. The Proud family are out getting Christmas presents. And Oscar is being greedy and miserly, which is a core trait of Oscar, is the fact that he is greedy and miserly, right? They meet a homeless family. It's a nuclear family, two parents and a teenage daughter. They are homeless. Oscar is rude to him. Trudy gets mad, uh, tells him to go to the shelter and find those people. So he goes down to the shelter. He finds the family. He and Penny get to know them a little bit. They invite them to their home for the holidays because Christmas is the next day. This family comes over. The dad's voiced by Samuel L. Jackson. They come over on Christmas. It's not a great time. Everyone is kind of unhappy with the way that it turns out, but it is what it is. So the next day they show up again, and he's like, oh, you invited us for the holidays, and we celebrate Kwanzaa. Um, Like, okay, also, by the way, in the whole Christmas thing, you find out that, like, basically the family chose to be homeless um, to, like, be less materialist. And, like, also they're vegans. They're vegans and all this other kind of, like, weird garbage, which is, like, yeah, you're going to portray a homeless family, portray one that intentionally chose to be homeless and are also weird hippies. Cool. So it turns out the family celebrates Kwanzaa, and I think Kwanzaa's, what, seven days? Um, and, and so every day for seven days, they come spend time with the Prouds, and the Prouds don't celebrate Kwanzaa or know anything about Kwanzaa, and they teach the Prouds about Kwanzaa and also about the spirit of community and the spirit of giving. And then something or other happens, and basically the Prouds end up going down to the shelter again, and they can't find that family And the lady acts like she'd never seen that family that they're talking about before. But then they randomly meet this white family who all of the superficial details of their lives, like the previous professions of the parents, the names of the parents and the names of their child, all match the names of this family, this like black family that was hanging out with the Prouds and teaching them about Kwanzaa. And so... Then the Prouds are like, hmm, that's weird. And like sort of the last shot is like earlier in the episode, that family had brought them a fruitcake and they threw it in the yard. And now the fruitcake has grown into a beautiful magical tree and we scan up to the top of the tree. And basically that family are just some kind of like three Kwanzaa spirits or something. That's the. I have a hard time explaining the end of this episode because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the basically it was the spirits of the holiday came down to make the family realize that they should celebrate this holiday, Uh and then they left. (laughs) Yeah, and it was like it said some really weird stuff about like homelessness and like need and it's weird because like then at the end it turns out that they had assumed the identities of like this white family but the prouds i don't think don't i don't they don't give anything to the to that family to the white family they don't give them like any money or offer them anything so i don't Uh, really understand what that bit was about no oscar did give oscar got the dad a job and okay uh they gave them some gifts so basically, oh, you're right, you're right. Oscar did, basically they did pay it forward. Mm. He learned not to be as greedy and miserly, which of course is only a lesson that exists just for the holiday special episode. Oscar goes right back to being a greedy miser <laughs> in every other episode of the series. It's just, it's hard to see what is the episode trying to say about like homelessness and and poverty and 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 need and it's really unclear to me i don't know why that's the vehicle they chose to use because like for example like rugrats had episodes about big jewish holidays and won like emmys for it and sort of the way they chose to do it was just like this is a jewish family 
and they have small children, so the small children are learning about what it means to celebrate these Jewish holidays, and therefore the children who watch the show are learning about what it means to celebrate Jewish holidays. They could have very easily done a holiday special about Kwanzaa in that same way, but instead they did this like weird supernatural thing where also like homelessness was involved. And they didn't really go into, like, what are actually the values of Kwanzaa. They just, like, stated all of the, like, words and then their English translations. And that was, like, pretty much it, you know? Yeah, they go over the seven principles, unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. Yeah. And they just say them like they don't go in the very first one they do like because it's at the beginning of before it becomes a montage. They go into a little bit like what it means. It's about like celebration of ancestors and like naming like worthy ancestors and stuff like that. Um, but none of the other ones, they don't ever go into it. It's just a montage where they say the principles. They literally just say them. Right. So, yeah, that yeah. episode is weird. <laughs> It's really weird. I don't, like, if you understand that episode or, like, have better information about it, or if, like, you're a black person who celebrates Kwanzaa and, like, has better information about that, please contact us. Because we don't know. To us, it was very weird. <laughs> um, and I think it's just a bizarre episode no matter what. But I'm not going to, like, say that for certain. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay just saying narratively it is a, a strange episode. Yeah, it's really weird. It's really weird. I don't know how I feel about it. Um, okay, so I want to say, I, I'm going to do a little bit here, because okay. the representation of the show is very important in the media landscape. Uh, the fact that it was, a primar it was an animated show about a primarily black family cannot be overlooked in its importance when communicating to children. Uh, so psychology has examined a lot of aspects, well, psychology and sociology have examined a lot of aspects about stereotypes, representation in media, uh, the effects of diversity on behavior. And for the most part, like research shows that this having, um, for example, having diverse Images being presented to people increases well-being. Uh, racial diversity has positive effects on uh, people's thinking and some of their uh, cognitive functioning. It's good for changing people's attitudes about stereotypes and race. Um, like positive and frequent exposure to other groups can facilitate positive interactions and allow one's beliefs to change or start out as essentially positive. Uh, it's just the concept that like exposure to minorities helps people eventually understand minorities. It's called the contact hypothesis. Um, very famous man by the name of Gordon Allport put forth the contact hypothesis back in the 50s. Like, you know, when segregation was still a thing. Um, I mean, overall we build like diverse air, like diverse societies, like they build strong relationships uh, between that and our well-being. So uh, the reason I went through kind of all of that is because this show gives us diversity in media, which for kids, we should kind of expect it to help them feel more welcome and increase a lot of aspects of well-being which I think is important for kids. We want them to grow up happy and healthy. And uh, yeah. racial and gender differences in like media and television affects kids' self-esteem. So there was a particular study by Martins and Harrison in 2012 where they looked at white and black pre-adolescent kids to assess the long-term effects of television consumption on global self-esteem, which just means like their overall self-esteem. And they found that um, after they controlled for a bunch of factors, white boys' self-esteem went up 
and everybody else's self-esteem went down. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and, like, I think it's really important just to say that, like, just by having this one show with a predominantly African-American cast, or at least, like, there are lots of people of color in it, too. Like, there are East Asian people and, like, like Latino people and stuff in this show as well. We have, like, quadrupled the number of, like, black people particularly and people of color in general that we have seen in all of the shows that we have watched combined, basically. Like, pretty much every other show we've watched, if it had any, like, characters who were people of color or more specifically, like, black people at all, it would have, like, one. Maybe, like, like a, a sort of, like, quote-unquote, like, one each situation, you know, where there would be, like, one black character and one East Asian character, you know? Whereas this show is almost entirely, like, predominantly black characters, and most of the side characters who are not black characters are East Asian or uh, Latinx. Um, so, I mean, in this respect, it's it's very important. Uh, there's also a sociological concept known as symbolic annihilation, which is, uh, it's the idea that if you don't see people like you in the media that you consume, you must somehow be unimportant. So, um, people do not, people's psychology doesn't exactly distinguish between the fictional world and the real world. The idea being that what we see, our brains still use what we see in media to help determine our expectations, how many people of our groups are in the world, uh, social norms, attitudes. Like we, we use media, even if we know that plot-wise it's fictional. Uh, so representation in a fictional in a in a fictional space still signifies social existence. It still signifies this thing is vital and important. Uh, therefore, the absence of something is interpreted as the opposite. You learn not to expect that thing. Um, and, and with race, that just, see, that just makes sense. Like, that's mm -hmm. fairly straightforward. Um, so overall... For representation, like there's you, you can read a bunch on the effects of diversity and representation on our psychological well-being and norms and all this other sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like in short, like representation does in fact matter, right? Uh, well, and uh, yeah, I mean, people have been like people would have been writing about this stuff forever uh, from sort of a like theory or philosophical perspective, but there's research backing up those claims. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like important. So when we analyze the proud family, like politically and psychologically, which is what we like to do on this show, it, it really cannot be understated. Like at the time that it was made on the network that it was airing, like to the audience that it was reaching the Proud family is, like, incredibly important just because of its representation. But if you're going to analyze, and, like, that's great. Like, that's awesome. I can't praise it enough for that. But when you're going to analyze a piece of art as a whole politically, all the good in the world that you do for representation does not undo, right, the reactionary elements of your politics. Well, and, and in the in the same way, uh, technically, psychology doesn't care if something increases some aspects of well-being when there are other things that decrease aspects of well-being. Um, which is just to say, you can't forget other predictive factors just because you have a couple that, in a cultural light, look really good. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, or, like, even, like, as much as I said, like, there are East Asian characters on this show. There are, like, three, like, there are four East Asian characters that are, like, peers of the students, 
of like the the kids on the show and then those characters parents and three of those characters are triplets so we only get one parent out of that and the portrayal of east asian characters on the proud family is pretty fucking negative like it's pretty racist (laughs) like i'm not gonna lie um you know and it really leans into stereotypes about like controlling Asian parents, Asian parents with too high of expectations, like Asian kids being great at math and academics and shit like that. You know, so as much as it's like, wow, there weren't any 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 East Asian characters on television, like in children's media at that time. Hmm, well, like there was Jackie Chan Adventures and that was a lot more of a positive portrayal than what you get in the Proud family, you know? I yeah. Uh... Jackie, sorry, we're gonna we're, we're gonna, gonna we're gonna get there eventually. I'm I'm very excited for Jackie Chan Adventures. Um, yeah. So here's what I have to say because we've been talking for for nearly an hour now, and I think we've just now gotten to the point where we need to address like the two major like reactionary political themes and psychological themes, I suppose, running through the Proud Family, which are its reactionary sexual politics. And it's reactionary class slash work politics. Uh, and I honestly think that we could talk for another 45 minutes about those things. Yeah, I do. I do have a little bit to say about the parenting dynamics of the show in terms of psychology as well. Um, yeah. But I mean, uh, so much of it revolves around Oscar. Yeah, and, like, I think a lot of that has to do with, like, the reactionary sexual politics. So what I think would probably be best for us and for the listeners is if we just cut made this episode a little bit shorter than our episodes normally are and then recorded uh, this weekend, recorded another a little bit short episode for us to talk about those themes rather than record, like, a super long episode right now to cover all of those things. Okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, because I think that we've hit, I think that, like, the parenting stuff, the class politics, and the sexual politics of the show are huge. They happen in, like, every episode, and, like, everything that we've hit so far, we've been able to cover in, like, ten minutes, and we just can't cover (laughs) this that quickly. I mean, my God. (laughs) My God. Uh, I want to say... A couple things, because the family stuff, I don't think, is going to be too much on its own, and it'll v- definitely lean into the sexual politics of the show. But yeah, go for it. I, I want to say that the Proud family handles most conflict through aggression. And uh, so, particularly amongst Oscar and his mother, um, but even... Oscar with Trudy, Oscar with Penny, Penny with her mom. They handle the only individuals in the family that tend to talk out their conflicts tend to be Penny and Trudy. So tend to be like the female characters of the family that are Trudy related. And um, everything else about Oscar and sh- and sugar tend to be like aggressive not not just physically aggressive the fact that physical aggression is included in their list of conflict resolution i use that term in quotes strategies is problematic on its own any family that uses physical aggression to deal with any problem whatsoever is already a huge red flag like if you walked into a therapist's office they would be like uh, we need to deal with that immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's covered by this thin veneer of, it's okay, it's a sitcom. Um, yeah. It's okay yeah. because it's a joke. But physical aggression and abuse is real, kids. And one aspect of media that we have studied pretty well is that kids pick up on aggression and will yeah. imitate it. Your mom shouldn't hit you even if you're a grown man. Like, even if you're grown, you're a grown man, it's not okay for your mom to hit you, right? And, and But, like, the other aspect of that that I just thought of because you were talking about how Trudy and Penny tend to talk out their problems, 
there's also like a weird toxicity to it though because like Trudy is like living up to this certain ideal of womanhood that involves being gentle and not aggressive and she demands it of Penny as well. Penny's sort of catchphrase is I can't stand y'all which she says under her breath when she is having justifiable frustrations with her family and every single time she says it her mother's like excuse me young lady and she immediately is like uh I mean and like smiles and says something nice because Trudy doesn't allow Penny to express through words even her dissatisfaction or frustration with the situation that is going around on around her and her family. Well, so this fits into a, a kind of traditional American nuclear family way that parents and kids interact, which which I was definitely leaning into. Um, mm-hmm. But just to finish up, I, I think that people over we're, we're desensitized to aggression but we treat sex like it's some taboo topic that bleeds in to shows like this where any sexual topic is like immediately hampered down by adults but they are readily aggressive with words or with actions and so i think um that that is a bad thing just uniformly that is a negative thing to be showing kids that, the mm-hmm. research is pretty clear on that, and I think that kids may in- inadvertently carry that on to their future relationships. But uh, the parents with Penny, Penny is a smart, caring, fairly intuitive young girl, mm-hmm. and her parents, even Trudy, really use, I've used this term before, an authoritarian parenting style um, it's mostly Oscar, which is you do what I say, you do it when I do it, no back talk. I don't have to fucking explain the reasons for something to you. Even if I have no reason at all and I readily admit it, you still have to do it. Um, you see the conflict that that plays out when kids become teens and preteens, when they start to be able to think like really, really carefully about stuff. Um Parents not having a reason for what they do becomes a significant negative. Yeah, and I think the show is not uncritical of Oscar's parenting. It is, but it is critical of specifically that aspect. Um, It's not critical of any of the like underlying assumptions that go into, I don't think it's critical enough of Oscar's parenting because specifically the idea of, I don't have to explain to you why gets addressed. There is a time when, uh, Trudy tells Oscar, she is not a baby anymore and you had better explain things to her and often, you know, and, and that is one of the few times that the show says something really good about the relationship between a parent and their teenage child. Um, I just don't think that it is critical enough of Oscar's parenting or the underlying assumptions that inform his parenting. And I think in some respect, the show animators, writers, creator, they're probably just mirroring their experiences that they had as kids. And to that extent, they can't exactly be blamed for intending to continue this sort of cycle But Mm -hmm. I I think this is one of those times where an uncritical retelling of one's childhood experiences can end up inadvertently reinforcing them to future generations. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And I'm really interested to see how that interplays with, like, the incredibly, like, fucked up and reactionary sexual and gender and class politics of this show and how that relates to uh, the show being made by Disney. Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about those things. And obviously the morality of the show is very Disney. Like it's very wholesome, oh, yeah. but in a but very like, not super, in a way no it decayed. It, it's know? superficial. <laughs> like it, it, it's like a pretty bobble. It, it is pretty on the outside, but it, it's empty and weak on the inside. 
Yeah. Just like so much of typical, like just so much of typical sort of Disney uh, Puritan morality, just rotten inside with this like facade. Yeah. of, Of, you know. Of pretty shiny good on the outside, right? So you really see Oscar's parenting style start to uh, come into conflict when he essentially becomes... I would not say Trudy is a helicopter parent. She tends to let Penny have freedom a little bit more readily. But Oscar is... Oscar's version of fatherhood is so bad for sexual health. Um, Mm -hmm. Really, any father figure on the show, it's this weird fucking obsession with their daughter's purity. Oh, yeah. They're straight up, like, purity ball dads. All of them. All, like, any boy who shows interest in them instantly becomes an enemy, and Penny has no say in the matter. She can't date till she's... 16, but I doubt that Oscar would ever let go. He's always going to be involved. He's always going to be stopping. Um, unless there's money to be made, in which case then he'll fucking throw his daughter to the wolves. Um, mm-hmm. That happens, kids. Uh, so his 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 morals are all... And it is said so perfectly for me in one episode where he says... Boys are only nice for one reason. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you are so shitty because you would turn around and you would whoop and waller, holler at a one of your friends. Like, they almost, like, basically in front of their wives, like, explicitly look and look at other women, which I'm not saying that people in couples can't look at other people and find them attractive, but it's very specifically in a way that isn't like, uh, it it is very clearly sort of a, Oh, guys are going to be guys. So this, this fatherly obsession with being a dog when they date people and then turning around and trying to, in this ham fisted way, try and, protect their daughters by not letting them free by, by, by trying to control them because they intimately understand how predatory male sexual norms can be is it's just absurd. It's just, yeah, it's, it's really great. It's the type of, and it's very, the thing is like part of the reason that we're going to be so critical about it is because it is extremely real Um, It is a very real way that fathers behave. And and for me as as a woman, and it's something that even like made my father observe, he observed it in other men and it made him uncomfortable. And he explicitly said to his all woman family that it made him feel like these other men thought like thought they were in sexual competition with young boys for their own daughters. You know, it's so extreme that it comes off as as nearly incestuous. Well, and and I think I I think people have written about that. I think like so it's like philosophically, I think feminists have written about that very idea that it's like almost a sexual obsession with their daughter's purity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's psychoanalytic in a way. Right. It's, It's just sort of a modern version of the Oedipus complex. But yeah. But like I said, I think that we, we we can't we can't get started on this now, or this episode is going to be three hours long. So we gotta, I think we gotta find a stopping point, and we gotta record another one to talk about this and to talk about the the class values. I, I just want to say that it would be very simple for Oscar to provide advice to his daughter to make sure he's there to help her when she makes mistakes. And, but he chooses not to. But he chooses not to. He chooses to scare away boys. And in my brain, he's just like, that just reinforces this whole cycle of, you know, fathers not letting their daughters like grow and not protecting them in the right ways. So I, I, yeah, I think sure. uh, I, I imagine next episode is just going to kind of be a shitting on Oscar party. Oh yeah, I think that our our second and final conversation about the Proud Family will be 
really interesting and involve a lot of insulting of Oscar Proud. <laughs> so uh, that I think is a great place for us to stop. I I, I look forward to talking about this next, <laughs> next weekend or this weekend. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I've been Paige. And I am Chris. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. <laughs> and this has been Animates. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at Animates. We have a Facebook pan- fan page, Animates Podcast. And if you have a burning question, commentary, take, response to anything that we've said we've confu- we've been confused about uh, on this or any other episode, you can always shoot us an email. It's Animates at gmail.com, where it's the number eight instead of the letters... A-T-E. Thanks so much for listening. As always, please like, subscribe, and give us a review.